Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Pour Over the Pages podcast. I'm your co-host, Ashley. And I'm Brayden. And if this is your first time joining us, um, we basically briefly discuss and review craft beer at the beginning of end, and end of each episode. And we also talk a lot about books. Um, so many books. So many books. <laughs> so in the interest of full disclosure, we've actually already recorded this episode but I'm not very tech savvy, and so my microphone was on mute the whole time. So this is attempt number two, and we're excited about <laughs> it. <laughs> Give her another go. <laughs> um, on the agenda today is our Black Lit episode. And so essentially, we participated in the Black Lit Challenge that was created by Seiji, or the Artisan Geek, one of our favorite booktubers, um, in the month of February. And we're going to talk a bit more about that in a second but we're super excited to talk to you about a bunch of black literature. Yes. So as per usual, we are going to start with our beverages today. Woo! Let's go. So this week I made a boo-boo. Boo. <laughs> and I <laughs> forgot to get a craft beer. So instead, I will be reviewing one of the new, exciting, bubbly flavors announced at the Super Bowl. If you don't know, now you know. I am reviewing Bubbly Peach. And unfortunately, that is my quote-unquote craft beer for the episode. Um, but I'm excited nonetheless. Ashley, please tell me what you're drinking Today, I am drinking a lovely donation from one of our listeners. <laughs> My dear friend Kendall sent me three beers from Flying Monkeys. And today, I am drinking 12 Minutes to Destiny, which is a raspberry hibiscus lager. And I'm super excited to try it. And thank you to Kendall for sending these beers such a long way across the country. <laughs> Yeah, that's very nice of you, Kendall. She was also a whiz at packing. I was super impressed. I'm super <laughs> impressed that they didn't freeze. I'm like, honestly can't believe that they didn't freeze in the P.O. box. So everything is good. <laughs> nice. Should we open our, our beverages? We shall. Uno, dos, tres. Oh, yeah, baby. Virtual cheers. Cheers. Clink. Clink, clank. <laughs> ah. Ooh. Ooh. This is good. <laughs> yeah, hold your review for the end of the episode there, Buster. Sorry, no spoilers. I don't I don't know how I feel about this yet. It's Sorry. a real <laughs> it's a real mid drink as of right now, okay? It's first sip. <laughs> well, I guess the next part is, what are we reading currently? Ashley, what are you reading currently? Or would you like me to go first? Um, you can go first. I need a second to gather myself. Okay. <laughs> well, since I'm a bad, bad boy and I haven't gotten around to reading our book of the month yet, which is Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka... Um, that's what I'm currently reading, <laughs> and I plan on reading it super fast so that we can 
put our next episode hopefully out a few days after this one so we can try to get back on track but we're doing that for our book of the month for february february and we're doing it because we always seem to read books that are influenced by kafka and we always hear the term kafka-esque so we're really trying to figure out what that all means yeah a little uh teaser for the kafka episode i've been using the term kafka-esque very loosely um and sometimes not necessarily in the proper way so we'll unpack (laughs) that in the episode look forward to that (laughs) ashley will unpack it i'll just be like yeah the book was good or yeah the book was okay so look forward to ashley's big brain unpacking ashley what are you reading um if it's okay i actually want to talk i'm reading two things but i only want to talk about one thing and then i want to talk about the podcast that i'm currently listening to because we honor various storytelling forms here sure if that's cool yeah that's fine okay thank you just you know because we're a podcast anyways (laughs) That's right. Um, we are a podcast. So I am currently reading um, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. I love it. And yes, it's a mouthful. It is a historical fiction um, post-World War II. And it follows a, an author who's living in London. And she's sort of um, looking for a new inspiration for her next book. And she receives a letter kind of just on a whim from this man on the uh, island of Guernsey, which is like the Channel Islands um, in the UK. And he has somehow acquired a copy of like a used book that she used to have. And she had her name and address in there. So he just decided to send her a letter and they start corresponding back and forth. And then she starts corresponding with this whole community because Guernsey was one of the places that was under complete German occupation during World War II. And so they start kind of telling their stories on Guernsey about Uh, the German occupation and how they dealt with that. And one of the ways was through the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, which was a a secret society society where they um, sort of talked about books in secret and they would get together after curfew um, as a community. And they fooled the German soldiers by making them think they were only talking about German literature, but they were in fact not. And they were uh, also just using it as a time to socialize and stay connected. So yeah, it's really great. It's awesome. I'm loving it so far. It sounds very wholesome. It is wholesome. There's also a movie on Netflix, so. Um, But yes, I wanted to talk about a podcast because I believe that podcasts are also great forms of storytelling and ways to consume stories. But yeah, I just started listening to, I just said the same thing twice, but (laughs) I just started listening to Criminal, um, which is a super well-known podcast, but it's my first time listening to it. Um, I've already listened to the first eight episodes and it's fantastic. I love Phoebe Judge. I wish my voice sounded like hers. And if you're into true crime podcasts at all, definitely check out Criminal. That's all I've got. Should we get into the challenge? Get right into the freaking meat and potatoes, shall we? Sounds good. (laughs) Um, I can give a a little description of the challenge yeah please please give the description of the challenge and then we'll do our points at the end so as i said before the black lit challenge was created by the artisan geek 
um, on YouTube. Her name is Seiji. Um, and she has run this for a couple years, I think. But this year, the challenge was to earn four points. And you earned one point for every book you read by a Black author from a different country. And you also earned additional points if you read a play, poetry, a classic, nonfiction, a book written by an LGBTQ plus author, a book written by a disabled author, or a book not originally written in English. Uh, so yes, that was the challenge. And it was created around the concept of Black History Month, but it doesn't, didn't necessarily have to be books specifically about Black history, just anything by Black authors. Um, yeah. Very epic. It's a, it was a fun challenge. It was, uh, I can't wait to do it again next year and to read more Black Lit. Not that you need an excuse to read Black Lit, but it is always fun to have a challenge to do things like this. Yeah, and Seiji creates a lot of great challenges, actually. Like, And she really encourages reading diverse classics, and she has some awesome recommendations on her website. So yeah, definitely she, check those out. She has an insane archive of, of books for the challenge that she put together, so... I couldn't imagine how long that took. So that's a—it's uh, extremely impressive. Yeah, it's super comprehensive. It's awesome. Um, so Brayden, tell us about your first book. All right, we'll start with the—we'll start with the appetizer, and then we'll get into the the main the main course. All right, my first book is the autobiography of an ex-colored man by James Weldon Johnson. It is a fictional biography. It's not, it's not, I mean, it's probably loosely based on uh, personal, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Personal account, maybe? Yeah, Something personal like account. But basically, our main character, he's um, half black, half white. He doesn't really realize until a certain age that he it could be considered black that happens i think to him in like the second grade and he starts in connecticut in a pretty a pretty white town and then he finds out that he could be considered black and that kind of rocks his world a little bit and makes him want to go south and kind of figure out what that could really mean so then he goes to atlanta to go to university he finds that outside of his hometown can be a little bit harsh he got robbed so he couldn't go to university right away so he gets a job in jacksonville and then he goes to new york after his factory in jacksonville gets shut down and then in new york he discovers gambling and then a musical genre called ragtime and it's like a piano based african-american type of music that is like loosely based on jazz i guess and then he meets a billionaire friend that's all he calls him by he doesn't call him by anything else but billionaire friend <laughs> which i think is hilarious but he's like a personal pianist for this billionaire friend friend and he goes all over the place he goes to paris his life it just seems so interesting because he goes from connecticut to atlanta to jacksonville even though that's not very far and then to New York, and then to Paris. And then all along the way, he has all these conversations with different people, and he listens into these different conversations about the race question and what it what it means to be black and uh, different people's opinions on 
what rights should black people have and stuff like that. <clears throat> and after Paris, he goes back to Boston and then he just kind of settles in and meets this woman that he really likes. And well, I guess he, you could say that he loves and then, but he struggles with this, this, uh, this problem. He doesn't know if he should be honest and say that he's part black, which I think is kind of insane. You look at today's society and you, and you, you would, you know, like I am half black and I would never feel like I need to go up to Ashley and be like, Ashley, I have something I need to tell you. I have black in me, you know, like that's not a thing that happens these days. <laughs> so it's, it's crazy that back in the day, that's, he struggled with it so much that he didn't know if he could do it, if it would ruin his relationship with this woman. And he ends up telling her because he just couldn't take it anymore. The pressure of her not knowing his true identity. And then she leaves and they make you think like, oh no, they're not going to be together. But then she comes back after the summer and they live, they have two kids together. So yeah, it's, it was just a really interesting journey of a colored person discovering what it means to be black but also being able to pass as white yeah um actually interesting context when we first recorded this episode i had not read passing by nella larson yet um but i actually have read it since we recorded our first episode and i um we were discussing it in my harlem renaissance literature class today and my professor also talked extensively about the autobiography of an ex-colored man um because yeah there's similar concepts going on in passing um just from a female perspective but basically like uh, a mixed race black woman is passing as white in the 20s and she has a white husband and she's trying to decide whether she should disclose her blackness to him or not, which is very similar, same theme to the autobiography of Next Colored Man. Um, so it's a really interesting conversation to be had. And um, yeah, there's like, there's the modern interpretations of the concept of passing too in The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, which was a huge book last year. Um, but yeah, I'm curious. I'm really curious to read this book now. So I'm glad that you talked about it. Yes, it's a short, but a lot to digest. So it took me a lot longer than I thought it would. But it was definitely worth, definitely worth the 150 pages and the time that it takes to read it. So I recommend it highly. So, yeah, we um, we talk a lot about James Alden Johnson, too, in my, my Harlem Renaissance literature class. Um, so if you don't know what the Harlem Renaissance is, essentially it was this time period in the 20s during the Jazz Age um, came as a result of the great migration of lots of black people moving from the South um, and moving into northern cities like Chicago, New York, Washington, etc. and looking for a better life, more opportunity, um, better jobs, more freedom, more artistic freedom, uh, various different things. And as a result, uh, one of the main places um, the center of the Great Migration, you could say, was Harlem. And there there was kind of this 
community of black artists, writers, thinkers, musicians, um, who did a lot of creating and did a lot of debating and um, speaking and just uh, sort of we're trying to define what the future would look like for black people in America. And of course you had a lot of different viewpoints intersecting during the Renaissance. You had people who were advocating for the inclusion of um, all classes, all sexual orientations, um, mixed race versus completely black people and the sort of colorism that went on there sometimes. And, um, and there was definitely this, there was a lot of people defining the movement in different ways. And so one of the things that we look at in my class is um, trying to work out um, if the movement was something that at its heart was about celebrating black culture and um, defining what that looked like in America, or was it more about making the black experience more palatable for white people? Because you had a lot of white people who had their fingers in the, the pot of this movement as well. Um, white people running the publishing houses, white people dabbling in black culture and um, as they so pleased to consume the music and the art and the literature. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of interesting texts that came from that time. And Johnson specifically, the author of this book, um, he was well-known and AACP member at the time. And um, he kind of came onto the radar in 1919 um, which was uh, a time period when there was something called the Red Summer, um, which was essentially mass lynching and violence against black people that took place in the summer of 1919. So he kind of uh, defined that term and, and wrote a lot about it in that time period. So um, very interesting thinker. Thank you for that very beautiful in-depth dive into the Harlem Renaissance. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. I mean, I'm super... I'm, <laughs> pretty passionate about it now that I've done so much studying and reading on it so I'm happy to share <laughs> yeah it sounds like a really awesome class and I wish I could be part of it honestly I still think we could sneak you in one day if only there's more <laughs> yeah. people in there <laughs> yeah it would be it would be less uh, suspicious if it was a bigger class probably <laughs> but yeah um awesome cool 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 well that's enough about my first book Ashley what about your first book um, the first book that I read for Black Lit Challenge was Lester by Raven Leilani. Um, this book essentially was a, about a 20-something black woman living in New York, I believe. I can't remember the specific city, but I think it was New York. Um, and she is sort of just working in this publishing job, not super satisfied, um, and she finds herself in this relationship with a 40 or to 50-something a white man who is in an open marriage with his wife and they kind of start seeing each other and their dynamic is really weird. I'm not the biggest fan of <laughs> open relationships to begin with. Um, and this particular dynamic was really weird to read about. Very uncomfortable at times. <laughs> but further into the book, she sort of finds herself intertwined uh with the wife as well because originally the rules of the this open relationship is that she's not supposed to visit the house but then something sort of happens and she ends up visiting the house and she ends up actually sort of forming this relationship with the wife and also um their adopted daughter who is black and living in this uh 
predominantly white suburbia. And so she forms this relationship with the daughter around a lot of common experience. Um, and also with the wife, um, based off of not too much, to be honest, because <laughs> there's a lot of jealousy going on there. But for some reason, they just kind of hit it off. And um, even though I was pretty disturbed by the the husband and what was going on there, um, my favorite part of this book was actually the relationship that she forms with the wife, because I think it was just super interesting to read about. Um, yeah. the, the fact that the relationship with the wife happens through an open relationship is just so strange to me. But, um, I mean, you gotta, you gotta be really cool with it <laughs> to be to have a relationship with somebody that is also in a relationship with your husband. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's super. Um, it's super weird. But further, I like how Leilani like further into the novel kind of just takes the spotlight off of the whole like sexual tensions with the husband altogether because he's kind of just like always traveling and they've kind of both decided that they don't really like him as much as they thought that they did um and they start kind of forming this relationship with each other and one of my favorite aspects of this book so the wife is a pathologist so she does autopsies and um the main woman um is an artist and she's always kind of like painting and trying to develop her painting skills and so they have this sort of like weird dynamic going where they don't really talk a lot, but they kind of just do random things together by happenstance. And so the wife starts bringing her along to the autopsy, to the morgue to do these autopsies. And um, our main character is just like in the morgue, kind of like painting the autopsy experience. And they just, like, play music and listen to it together. <laughs> and then they go out and have a cigarette and talk about not the relationship, but other mundane things after. <laughs> Nothing like a big relationship builder, like, painting dead bodies and talking about it after. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, it has, But it does have really interesting, deeper discussions going on, I think, about... Um, the experience of growing up black in a predominantly white neighborhood, uh, class, um, white parents adopting a black child, um, open relationships. There's all sorts of deeper conversations to be had around this book. And one of the things that I came to the conclusion of, like the beginning of the book is like really, um, almost kind of like, I felt a lot of disgust reading it and not around like the, it was like, partly because of the guy, like, the husband, because he was kind of creepy, and his, like, his views just kind of gave me, like, the heebie-jeebies. Mm -hmm. And also, at the beginning part, like, the um, main character, she's living in this, like, this apartment, and her landlord sucks and never fixes anything, and, like, basically, they they have, like, cockroaches, and she keeps trying to get them, like, um, exterminated and stuff, and her landlord is just, like, won't work with her at all. And so she's living in this apartment that, like, she herself is super kind of just grossed out by, and the author describes it, like, in detail. And she, like, continues to have this, like, looming air of just, like, uncomfortable things happening in the book that I didn't vibe with at first. But at the end, in the end, I came to the conclusion that, I mean, not all books are supposed to be, like, super enjoyable reads. And I think that she might have kind of put this really, like, looming feeling um, on the book on 
on purpose and not, and I think it wasn't on purpose to make the people feel disgust about this guy or maybe like her apartment, but I think it was more to show the experience of like what she was dealing with and the emotional stuff that she was going through, like being a part of all this. And yeah, I think it was much deeper, had much deeper meaning. I could be reading too far into it, but. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, who knows and who cares? Read read as far into it as you want because it's interesting. <laughs> Reminds me of like, um, like how you how people go like, ugh, I hate this villain of this TV show, and you're just like, yeah, that's how you're supposed to feel, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's kind of what it reminds me of, but yeah, it sounds super interesting. I wanna, I wanna definitely try and read that one because the relationship between the two women just sounds so crazy to me, and I just want to really know how that develops. I'm a big fan of character and relationship development, so. Yeah, this is this is a super character-driven novel, so I think you would enjoy it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to give it a shot. <clears throat> also, when they were describing this uh, neighborhood in the book, all I could think about was Forest Hill Estates. You know that neighborhood? <laughs> mm, and is it in Midhurst? Yeah, it's like uh, super... It's it gated? No, it's not gated, but there's a lot of really nice houses <laughs> in Forest Hill wow. Estates. Um, and that's the neighborhood that I kind of pictured it, um, for the book. Always trying nice. to assign. I love when you can, yeah, I love when you can <laughs> assign, like, personal things to, to book things so you can have, a, like, a better picture of what's happening. Yeah, yeah, me too. Anyways, um, yeah, I, overall, I think I gave it, I gave it a 3.5 out of 5. It was a solid read, nice. though. Yeah. Nice. Speaking of character-driven stories, that's exactly what we got (laughs) for my next book, which is The White Boy Shuffle by Paul Beatty. And this is a great book, and I loved it. And um, it's basically about our main character, Gunnar Kaufman. It's like a coming-of-age story. You know, it's got a little bit of everything. It's a little bit of a satire, says Ashley. <laughs> um, but it's about our main character, Gunner, who starts... It's his, it's his journey from starting in, like, the Santa Monica suburbs, and he ends up as, like, this black messiah, the savior of all black people. And the journey is just... It's a little insane, honestly, <laughs> and it's it's so funny and so sad, and and it has good talking points, and like it's not just like this funny sad story. Like it it touches on like police brutality, and um, once again, how it is for a black person to grow up in a dominantly white neighborhood, and it just shows Gunner's evolution throughout all these different moments in life he he starts off in santa monica and he move has to move to i think it's called hillside in los angeles <laughs> uh, los angeles <laughs> i love that hillside in, in los angeles <laughs> and uh so he goes from a suburb basically to like the hood and he dresses like super non-black whatever that may be right but when he gets to hillside he's 
constantly picked on and bullied and just like has like the worst time and it's not until he makes a couple of friends one being like this super gang banging gangster which is a weird dynamic and then one is like this like super music nerdy basketball player <laughs> and like they he so he, through them he gets into a, a whole bunch of other shit like he's it getting into gang related stuff and like robberies and all this stuff and then he's starts becoming a basketball prodigy and throughout that he starts writing poems and people are just all about his poems and then he gets accepted to like all these ivy leagues but then goes to boston university where people are just like fawning all over him because of the poetry he wrote and then he puts out a book for his poetry and then he's just like the next mlk basically and he's just leading the way with all these speeches and stuff and it's just like there's just so much stuff that happens like he he marries a mail order bride from jap whoa from you Japan? didn't tell us what? Tell me about like, that. <laughs> how is that how is that a how is that a thing, you know? Like, right when he turns 18, he mail, he marries his mail-order bride from Japan. And then, but they end up having this really great relationship and having a, like, having a daughter at the end of it and stuff. And it's just, like, it was just, like, so many, like, ups and downs and all-arounds. And just seeing his attitude towards things is, was extremely interesting. And, um, I recommend this book basically, basically to anybody. It's, it's really fun. It can be lighthearted, and it can have some really serious, dark tones as well. Um, but a very good book. Definitely one of my favorites of the Ooh. year so far. I gave it a 4.5 out of 5. But it's only February. March now, but February. So a lot can change. But right now, it's definitely one of my favorite books I've read so That's far awesome. this year. Yeah, I definitely... I'm mean, so intrigued by Paul Beatty after your your explanation of his writing. I definitely want to read more Paul Beatty from I might I might go out of my way to do so this year, but there's lots on the plate this year already, so we'll have to wait and see. Can you elaborate on the I I wanted to ask you. So like when you talk about him becoming a black messiah, do you mean that in a literal sense? Like to add does that add to the satire of the book? Like he literally, yeah, like his character becomes like a god figure to like black people. <laughs> Crazy. It's not like just in his head. Like it's just like okay. <laughs> I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, that. no. Like his character becomes this. Like I don't know. I guess his poetry just touched so many people, and like he's just like smart and like a basketball player, and he's just got everything going on. So I guess he just got a lot of attention over all over these years, and yeah, I don't know. You gotta read it. You'll. You'll see. You'll see after. It's hard to explain, but basically it's it's from him becoming a, a nobody in a white sub, suburban neighborhood in Santa Monica to, like, the most popular black person in the world, basically. Interesting. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. Well, speaking of poetry touching people's <laughs> hearts. Wow, look at all these segues. We are so good. I'm trying my best. <laughs> One of the other books that I read uh, for the Black Blood Challenge was Finna by Nate Marshall, and it's a collection of poems. Um, obviously, <laughs> I said that. <laughs> but basically, uh, yeah, Nate Marshall is a huge 
poetry idol of mine. I've been following him since I like was super young and first started getting interested in poetry and writing poetry. Um, and he was in this really great documentary called Louder Than a Bomb, um, which is about a slam poetry competition on the south side of Chicago. And um, he performed a couple of poems in that documentary, and I just never heard poetry performed like he performed it. And his writing was so witty and funny and intelligent, but also heart-wrenching and just touched on so many different things. Um, and so I've always really appreciated his work, but I only recently found out that he had a poetry collection out. Um, and so I listened to this one as an audiobook, which was a great experience because he narrated it himself. Love that. Yeah, I absolutely love that too. It's like, it's awesome. Um, but yeah, this collection was really good. It was great to hear some callback to his really early poetry back from when he was like 15 and 16. Now I think he's, I think he's 30 or somewhere up around there. But, um, yeah, some of the, he had callback to some of like the really great lines from his poems from so long ago, which I thought was cool and nostalgic. Um, but he talks about a lot of different things. Um, there's some more serious poems, some more satirical poems, he talks about, um, he has all these intersecting uh, little clips throughout the collection where he talks about the other Nate Marshall, um, which is essentially this white guy named Nate Marshall. Um, and he talks about how their experiences have diverged in America, essentially, which is a really interesting um, intersection from, from like all of his different poems. And I like mm. the way he like carried that concept through the whole collection. Um, yeah, overall, I gave this four out of five absolutely love Nate Marshall as a poet. He's amazing. Um, and if you listen to this audiobook or read the book, um, and you like it, definitely check out some of his poetry performances on YouTube as well. But yeah. Nice. I love when authors, uh, record their own audiobooks, And I feel like it's especially, especially epic when like it's poetry and it's done by the poet, you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. It's so, it's so powerful. I just feel like especially with poetry, it's such a raw emotional form that somebody else reading your poetry yeah. can't you do know, it justice. <laughs> I was literally just about to be like, you know what? Would it be a little more effed up if somebody else read the poetry? Like, I feel like that that would only be acceptable if the poet was like dead or something. Yeah, no, I agree. There's like there. I feel like there's no other like there's no excuse like that that poetry book should be read by the poet unless otherwise it's just like you're just fully unable to get them to do it, but nonetheless, extremely extremely epic stuff. <laughs> okay, segue segue off of me. Wow, speaking of epic epic stuff, <laughs> my. F- my last book that I read for the Blacklit Challenge is Romance in Marseille by Claude McKay. A bay bay. Um, <laughs> the most interesting thing for me about this book is the history of the book. So, as you may or may not know, this book was not fully published and released to stores until february of 2020 and you're you might say it's a new book no 
wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> it's an old book. It was written over 90 years ago by Claude McKay, but it was there was only two copies that existed in the world up until 2020. One of them, and Ashley, I might need your help with this. Uh, uh, one of the one of the versions was a shorter one, and it was at Yale's Binecki Rare Book and Manuscript Library. You're you were so close, Binecki, which basically I think you got it. So, <laughs> I'm, I think that was pretty good. And then they had the longer version at the New York Public Library Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. And Claude McKay worked on this book for quite a long time, and he always would just keep putting it off and just, like, not finishing it and going to other books and stuff like that. And it went through a few different title changes. At first, they called it The Jungle and the Bottoms. I'm not quite sure why. But then they changed it to Savage Loving, which I think that title has a little more like it like it, it, this book could be called Savage Loving still. But they canned that one because it was too obscene for the time. So Claude McKay, 1993, put this one on the back burners, but eventually finished it. And eventually it came to light in 2020, which is just kind of insane if you think about it imagine being one of the people that read this book just by chance by waltzing into one of these two libraries and being like oh what's this book <laughs> yeah oh my gosh you would discover some <laughs> crazy stuff <laughs> uh, i think it's so so interesting but short summary of the book it is about our main character lafala who is a sailor born in west africa uh, he moves to Marseille and then gets absolutely fooled and fleeced up by a Moroccan prostitute. And out of self-loathing and embarrassment, he stows away on a ship to New York where he gets frostbite on both legs and both has to get both of his legs amputated. Whew. Wow. That's a tough so time. So sad. Yeah. Gosh, God damn it. But he ends up suing the company... I'm not sure how that works, but you know, laws, lawyers. He sued the company who owned the ship that he got frostbite on. So he started making, he, he, he was getting into some money. So he goes back to Marseille, has some more crazy relationships with more prostitutes. You know, men never learn, apparently. Am I right? But <laughs> um, he, he ends up stowing away again and leaving again but it's that's just is a quite the interesting book um there are some lgbtq plus themes which is very interesting like I, I feel like claude mckay was way ahead of his time with like writing about stuff like this um the main character was disabled like i don't know if you see that very often back in the the 20s and 30s like you know what i mean so I feel like Claude McKay deserves some credit for that kind of stuff. And the book was out of my enjoyment. My enjoyment rating of the book was 
3.5 out of 5. The history was super interesting. The story was good, but less than a 4 for me. So it was it was entertaining enough, but oh, also I'd like to say the writing is beautiful and um it's very flowery and poetic at, at points and then also very classic at some other points but it goes back and forth like his explanations and stuff i was like wow was this really written in 1920 to 30 that seems absolutely insane to me so overall it was a pretty good book um and if you want to read something that was ahead of its time then give it a shot I think Claude McKay is so interesting. He is such an interesting person, thinker, poet, writer. Um, yeah, he, and like you say, very ahead of his time, super progressive, um, always fighting for inclusion in the Harlem Renaissance beyond just inclusion of black people, but inclusion of uh, black lower class people, black people from different diasporas around the world black members of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, yeah. And I'd love to tell the story of the railroad. <laughs> yeah. Go. Yeah. The, tell the story of the railroad, please. Um, so I did a presentation on Claude McKay early on in, uh, my Harlem Renaissance class. And, um, I found out that he's sort of thought of as to have given the inaugural address of the Harlem Renaissance, um, which is interesting because he actually left the Renaissance, uh, left Harlem during the Renaissance early on um, because he, he rejected the way that it was going. He didn't really believe that it was including as many people as it, as it should have been, and so he left. Um, but at the beginning of the Harlem Renaissance, at the turn of the 20, or at the turn of the 20s, um, he was working on the Pennsylvania Railroad in the dining car, and he had written this poem called If We Must Die. A really short poem if you have the chance to read it. And it's quite, um, it's quite gruesome. It's pretty, it's kind of a call. It's powerful. Yeah, it's po very powerful. Call to action um, for black people to fight back against white supremacists at the time. And it was born out of uh, Red Summer of 1919. And McKay describes the fear that him and his colleagues experienced on the Pennsylvania Railroad stopping in different towns and not knowing what the attitudes or racial tensions were like and being so scared to just get off of the train and go into town for fear of getting lynched or, um, yeah, having horrible profanities screamed at them and all sorts of horrible things. And so he wrote this poem, If We Must Die, um, calling for Black people to fight back. And... He was sort of thought to be this really introverted person. Um, and so such a, a powerful poem was a bit out of character for him, so to speak. But there's this description of him standing on top of one of the tables in the dining car and reading this poem with so much zest and force um, to all of his black colleagues and this eruption of just renewed hope and the sense that they were able to go on um and yeah i just think that that's a really a really beautiful story and a lot of times that that is thought of him reading that poem is thought of the inaugural address of the harlem renaissance uh in 1919 so 
Yeah, if you have the chance to read the poem, then you should do it because it's an it's a really good poem. It's super powerful, and it can make you feel so much with just a few words. Yeah, it's a. It takes the form of a sonnet and manipulates it in an interesting way um, that I, I so wish we had more time to talk about. I feel like each of these books could be like a full episode. <laughs> Honestly, we definitely could. Yeah. <sighs> but um, yeah, I'm I'm really glad that you read *Romance in Marseille*, and I think I think it deserves more attention because Claude McKay really did shape a lot of the belief around the Harlem Renaissance, but he was largely unrecognized during the Renaissance itself. Yeah, I'm hoping that maybe one day Claude McKay will get the recognition that he deserves yeah. for all of that. Well, Ashley, now it's time for you to segue off of me. Uh, you have two more books, right? Yes. You can just fire those off back to back. Sounds good. So i got two more books to go through. Uh, first one is Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. This was a nonfiction book that explored a lot of different issues that um, we don't tend, or the general population doesn't tend to think of as feminist issues. Um, but Mickey Kendall makes a strong case um, for things like food insecurity, uh, gun violence, um, the way we we characterize the strong black woman trope. Um, all these different things, respectability politics, all being integrated into feminism. And the byline of this book is um, notes from the women a movement forgot. And so it's very much about how white feminism tends to push forward and think of feminism as a collective when they're actually inherently oppressing other feminists um, who maybe aren't as privileged as they are, be that because of race, class, um, abledness, various things. Um, and so she makes a really strong case and she talks about the context, concept of intersectionality, um, that being the way that uh, different social structures oppress different groups and how these levels of oppression can be layered on top of one another and the effects that that has on an individual. Um, and she covers a lot of ground. There's a wide breadth of topics um, and it sort of just gives you like a little dive into each one of them, which I appreciated. I think it's a good introductory look at um, intersectionality discourse and feminism. And um, some specific things that she talked about that um, really, I guess, opened my mind. One thing she talked a lot about uh, the widespread underdiagnosis of PTSD in people who have grown up in neighborhoods with high violence um, and the effects that that has later in life, which was, to be honest, something that I had never thought too much about like I mean in nursing we talk a lot about how people have residual effects from childhood trauma and how it can affect their health later on in life but I think that labeling it as PTSD is actually super important because if you think of the like experience I mean I'm not speaking from personal experience um, but I'm just talking from experiences I've read in the book of growing up in neighborhoods with high high violence rates um, it's not dissimilar to individuals who have been in war zones and then come back and still have super high um, stress levels and are easily triggered by, by things because they've had to adapt to basically survive. Um, and they're so used to such living under such high stress all the time. Um, and so I think that that was a really important conversation that she brought up 
And she talked about it specifically in the context of women, which I think is also super important. Because, I mean, typically when we think about, or at least when I think about um, gang violence and stuff, I associate it with men. Um, But she talks a lot about how the huge impact that that has on women in the community too, be it if women are involved in um, gangs and moving drugs or different things, or if they're um, just in a relationship with people who are in gangs and the violence that that brings into your, can bring into your home. Um, and sometimes like the domestic abuse that can go on, just the general feeling of unsafety growing up in a place where, um, and safety specifically for women, I mean for everyone, but she talks about it specifically for women growing in a place, growing up in a place where there's a lot of violence going on and you could just be caught in the crossfire or something. Yeah, there's a lot of connections that people don't usually think about when you're from the outside looking in right so you usually you when you see gang related things it's so focused on everything that's male related that you never really stop to think about what the females in those situations are going through or like how they could be connected to any of this gang related stuff you know a hundred percent yeah yeah, she brought it up. It was integrated. That whole concept was woven throughout the the whole book. And I think that, yeah, she she opened a lot of uh, thought processes for me that um, I hadn't been exposed to. And so I really appreciated this book for that. The only thing I'll say is that it is written from an American context. And so sometimes she would refer to different like American political events that had happened um, or different like social media battles, stuff on Twitter um, that I wasn't necessarily familiar with, so I had to do some, like, Googling on the side, but wasn't a big deal at all. I knew going into it that it was American-based, and I still think that a lot of the the arguments are super applicable to a Canadian context, so, um, yeah. For sure. Canada's not that much different than America. <laughs> no, I mean, basically everything could be transferred directly over besides her discussion about healthcare. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's a place we definitely differ. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, not to say that there's uh, not white supremacy in the healthcare system, because there is 100%, um, but we have different access, thankfully, um, to yeah. healthcare in Canada. But um, yeah, so overall, I think I, I gave this 4.5 out of 5, I think. Um, I have a hard time rating nonfiction books, but it was, it was a really great intro to this concept. Yeah, I'm so super interested in reading that one yeah it was a, uh, it was good and she also uh narrated her own audiobook on this one so i love that let's go um okay last book i'm gonna fly through it <laughs> no. last book that i read or listened to um rather also narrated by the author yet again love that ooh, 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 ooh. um was we should all be feminists by chimamanda ngozi adichie and this was basically an extended essay about um, feminism, why we should raise both men and women to be feminists, and how um, a feminist society basically starts from day one of raising your child. Uh, yeah, whether he's, he's male or female, or whether he or she or they are male or female or don't identify with a binary. But um, yeah, she talks about how important it is to just make sure that we're having those conversations from a super young age and she talks about her experience too um of growing up in nigeria and kind of not at first wanting to be associated with the feminist label because people would say to her like oh you're a feminist like you must be super angry 
And so then she started calling herself the happy feminist. (laughs) (laughs) So people knew that she came in peace, but just wanted to have critical conversations. Um, So yeah, uh, it was really great. It's not a, it's not a long listen at all, but I think that she brings up a lot of really important, important points around feminism. So I gave this one four out of five and would highly recommend Nice. Yeah, it's important to start having conversations like that at a young age. I feel I feel like people write that off it though because they're like, "Why would I tell my son or daughter about this stuff that they might not even understand?" But how else are they supposed to understand if you're not going to teach them? You know? Exactly. Yeah, and she like she brings up really relevant points about like how we raise young girls and boys like how we we kind of raise young boys into this expectation that they need to always provide and and pay and um all these things and how we raise you know young women to kind of be submissive and how both of those concepts need to change because it doesn't do it does a disservice to both both genders it does yep yeah in a world where we're striving for equality that is not the way that children should be raised i don't think yeah and I mean, she's talking about this from uh, the context of growing up in Nigeria, but I yeah. still think that those uh, those lessons are still taught to kids here. For oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. She talks about how we sort of just assign kids to these these gender roles so early when, you know, instead of just letting them be kids and teaching them good values, how to be a good person, um, we're like, okay, well, this is your gender role. Rather, we're, do- we're not necessarily doing it consciously, sitting down and being like, this is yeah. your gender role. <laughs> but um, we definitely teach it to them subconsciously through our actions. And- oh, 100%. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of what kids learn at a young age like that is they're being taught by their parents, whether they know, whether, whether the parents know they're teaching them that or not, you know? A hundred percent. Just so much through like observation and just yeah. taking in the world around you. Yeah. But yeah. Um, well, that's everything for me. Yeah. Those are the books we read for the Black Literature Challenge by the Artisan Geek. And it was a great and fun ride. And now we will rack up them points to see... Well, I don't, it's not a competition, but we're going to rack up the points. (laughs) Okay, so, um, well, let's do yours first. Okay. So, your first book was Autobiography of X-Colored Man, That's correct. And so that would count as a classic. So that's one point. And then would you also like to count that as American? Yes. Okay, so that's two points. Let's go. Next. White Boy Shuffle, right? Yeah. Okay. So. uh, Did we... Is Paul Beattie British or he's American? He's American. So I don't think you get any points for that one. You don't even get a point for reading a a book? You don't get a point? I don't think so, because you already used your, your... American point. And it doesn't fit in to any of the other ones. It's a fake so non fiction, Ashley. What about that? Uh, you're going to get a lot of points from Claude McKay, so don't even, don't even fret. <sighs> All right. Next, then. 
Okay. So Claude McKay, you could count him as a Jamaican author because he was born in Jamaica, in Sunnyville, Jamaica. Okay. So that's one point. Um, classic, two points. LGBTQ+, plus because he was bisexual, three points. And yes, that's it. So three points for Claude McKay. Cool. Five points. So do I win? Um, let me tell you. What was, no, Hang what on. was Hang the, on. what was the goal? Of... <laughs> oh, the goal was to earn at least four points. So you definitely made the yeah, challenge. I'm not trying to beat goal. you. I'm trying to meet the challenge goal. God, everything's going to be a competition, Ashley. <laughs> Listen, this is just our space. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. So let me see what I've got here. Um. So hood feminism, nonfiction and American. Uh, We've got Finna, which I'll count as poetry, so that's three points. We Should All Be Feminists is nonfiction, so that'd be four points. And Lester by Raven Leilani I think is no points, actually. Yeah. Wow. Because I've already counted my American, American author, so four points for me. That's pretty mediocre, honestly. Hey, no. <laughs> Just joking. Oh, phew. Thank goodness. You, you read more books so than me, sad. so you win. How about that? <laughs> it's a tie. It's, it's definitely a tie. All right. I'll accept a tie um, this time. Should we review our beers? I'm so excited for this. Yeah, I would love to review my beer, Ashley. Sorry, you're bubbly. <laughs> uh, yeah. What do I have to say about peach bubbly? Well, let me just start by saying it's absolutely peachy, okay? <laughs> and it's super bubbly. Um, it's delicious. I give it 10 out of 10. Um, top three bubblies for sure. Uh, Ashley, would you like me to list my top three bubblies? I'm dying to know. Please tell me. Okay, 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 okay. okay. Number one. Pineapple bubbly. Ooh. Number two, blackberry bubbly. Ooh, nice. Number three, peach bubbly. Wow. So this, but okay, all right. So it's in so, third. It's in third. Okay. So anybody, if you're a fan of spicy water, <laughs> I highly recommend peach bubbly that i just spilled the remnants onto my mouse pad so um yeah that's my beer review ashley tell me about your real beer review okay final thoughts on 12 minutes to destiny raspberry hibiscus lager by flying monkeys it's fantastic kendall this stuff is so good (laughs) thank you for sending this um, this is 10 out of 10. I, and I'm so sad now because I only have one. Oh, well. Uh-oh. Can you get Flying Monkey up there? No, no, no. No? No, Flying Monkey's a berry thing. Yeah? They don't carry berry beer here. Why? Berry is famous, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we had that big pot bust a long time ago. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I totally forgot about that. It was pretty epic. <laughs> Put us on the map. 
Oh my god. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I will say, not only is this beer delicious, the can is gorgeous. I love that the the tagline it says craft beer is our meditation and it's a very psychedelic looking can. Fantastic. I absolutely love this. <laughs> you wanna hear the blurb? Yeah, I do. Okay. <clears throat> it says Enjoy some sacred idleness. This sessionable, ruby-tinged lager is perfect for stopping the day and breathing. Steep with heaps of hibiscus flowers, rose hips, and fresh raspberries, 12 Minutes to Destiny is a uniquely refreshing brew. Interesting. I'm going to have to go and buy some of that myself and try it, I think. It's, uh... Do you think I would like it? Yeah, I think you would. It's not... It doesn't have, like, the sour tang, like... Um, Jelly King does or anything, but it, it's got like a nice fruity flavor. I think you would appreciate. All right, I'm gonna try it. I'm excited to hear your thoughts. All right, I think that's a wrap. <laughs> Thank you for sticking with us. If you stuck with us all the way to the end, we appreciate you. We appreciate you so much for listening to the end. Anybody that listens to the end, you guys are absolute legends. The true fans. <laughs> yeah. And um, we'll try to get the Metamorphosis episode out ASAP pronto so that we can get back on track. We are unknown what the book of the month is unless Ashley has decided. No, I'm so sorry. I still need to make a pro con list. <laughs> okay. Keep, a, keep an eye out on the Instagram for our book of the month for March. Join in if you want for that talk at the end of the month. And yeah, uh, that's about it. Anything else, Ash? Um, the only thing I'm going to say is if you want to support our podcast, uh, the best way you can help us out is to rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes if that's what you use, or just tell tell your friends about us. <laughs> that's all. Yeah, share <laughs> the love. We'd appreciate it. <laughs> we appreciate any support, and thank you for listening We will see you next time for the next episode of Pour of the Pages. Goodbye.